speaking for myself, I think never be too big to think you can't learn something. Never be afraid of a field you don't know that much about. And you never know, well, number one, you should be very respectful to who you're dealing with. Always. Even if it's someone that's the biggest. Yeah. yeah. Be respectful. So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople. We all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. Hey, thanks so much for checking out today's podcast. Super excited to introduce you to a buddy of mine who I've known for a decade, who I now call partner. Yes, I've partnered with him on his spirits business, which is a bourbon and a tequila and an unknown named wine to be determined. And today we're talking about not the products, but how has he created these luxury brands? How has he positioned it? What were the mistakes he made along the way? What were the lessons he learned in creating a wine with he and his partner that had north of 20 perfect 100s and now selling that and starting the whole thing over again? It's really the entrepreneurial journey and I think you're gonna find it fascinating. Check it out. So Chris. Tom. Thanks for having us to your house, buddy. Thank you and uh, you didn't tell me that to answer all those questions, I need to bring the rest of my team here because I'm not yeah. quite sure what I'm going to say. <laughs> it's perfect. So, uh, so we met. Uh, I say on my back porch. I want to say nine years ago, and yeah. yeah, it was a while ago, right? Maybe a decade ago. It was longer than that. Um, our his older daughter and my younger son went to school together, and of course, you know, it's always a, a fun way to create fast friends and great relationships, you know, through your children. Um, but what I was always enamored by is Chris's dry sense of humor, which you're going to pick up on today. And he is brilliant. And I say that not being tongue in cheek in any way, shape or form. This is a guy that has, again, created multiple successful brands and you're going to get a ton of value out of this. So Chris, maybe just start by just giving them like, where did you grow up? Just kind of a casual conversation. Is this your first time, by the way, being on a podcast? It is. All right, so, so this is, it feels kind of like a uh, FBI investigation, you know, like where were you on the night of the 14th, but it's, it's way more casual. So just give them the backstory. Where, where did you grow up, you know, and how did you get here? Sure, um, well, it's been a, I don't know, I guess I would consider it a bit of an interesting journey. I never would have thought I'd be here now, but yeah. um, born and raised in Canada, um, educated in Canada, went to university for a long time uh, from Toronto, and um, just, I left Canada in 1990 on a sort of two-year sabbatical working uh, position uh, that uh, never went back. Okay, so you're, you're skipping over something important here because when you think about uh, someone that gets into the wine and spirits business, it's probably not typical for them to have a biochemistry degree and two different law degrees and passing the bar three times. T give, us a give us a little insight there, man. Like, you're a very well-educated individual. Well, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, I just didn't want to work. So yeah. the easiest way not to work is stay in school and to keep accepting you and keep going. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I, um, my, my parents, uh, their families were immigrants from Eastern Europe to Canada, mm -hmm. like most people were. And, yeah. uh, you know, they instilled, um, you know, you go to school. Yeah. You know, my father was the first in the family to go to university. He's very highly educated. He was a uh, PhD doctor mm -hmm. and loved wine. And that was sort of my introduction to having wine around the house. Uh, but being a kid, you know, you drink beer and things like that. Um, so it was never... You know, I was never told to go to college or anything like that. It was just, that's just what we did. Yeah. You know, so my brother did, I did, and, um, you know, originally wanted to be a dentist because really? I was really strong in math and sciences. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, didn't do very well in English. Got it. And I still don't. Which is, but that's interesting because you're such a great storyteller. But we'll, we'll get into storytelling and branding, you know, in well, a little bit. Well, that's acting. That's not, that's not English. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, whatever works. Well, no, it's just, uh, you know, I sort of had my, it's interesting because, um, None of my children have, uh, you know, sort of strong suits in math or science, but they're good in good in English and in, in, in drama, interesting in communications. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. but in any event, uh, that was my natural. Well, tell okay. So tell us, you you all of a sudden you wake up and you've got three degrees. You pass the bar, you know, both in the U.S. and in Canada, and you can't even get a job. Well, it was the misfortune of coming out at a time when the economy was in a bit of a dump, and uh, you know, I was a solid B student. Mm -hmm. And I went to a solid B school, which was, I was happy to be there. But at that time, if you weren't, and I think a lot of people can understand this, you know, going for job interviews at a college and, um, 
people looking, well, your school's not good enough or your this isn't good enough or you weren't at the top of the class. Uh, but most of my people, people I know, weren't. Yeah. So sort of right from the get-go, I kind of got the idea, oh, no one's going to hire me. Yeah. And the opportunities that were there in my field were really terrible. Yeah. And I remember I had a good friend that I used to do a lot of mountain biking in, uh, in Ontario and British Columbia. And uh, he repped for a really big mountain bike company. And he said, well, why don't you be my Western Canadian uh, sales rep? I'm like, okay. And I remember my dad lost his mind. Oh, yeah. Trip, you know, PhD. Because it was gonna, it You're was, going into sales? Well, no. I was, gonna, you know, I, I was getting more into skiing and love being out west. And I think, well, why am I going to work in a sweatshop yeah. you know, 80 hours a week and not make any money? And I could be out there in the outdoors selling mountain bikes and making yes. double. Yeah. And uh, so that was kind of the path I was going down for a little bit. Interesting. So, so what was the job that took you to the islands? Well, a college roommate of mine uh, that I went to law school with, um, he actually did three degrees, three degrees at the same time. He was a year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. uh, he was working in a very prestigious law firm in Calgary. He, unlike me, he had an A average. He had a good job. Got it. Uh, but he quickly learned that it really wasn't for him, even though he was the guy you would think to be the most corporate mm -hmm. out of anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, his father had a great connection uh, of an old Canadian gentleman who was a World War II pilot, uh, flew two tours in Lancaster, Obama, survived. Wow. And uh, basically said, listen, I want to do something different. I want to start something different. And he uh, packed his wife in his little plane and flew down. He started traveling through the British Islands. And uh, he settled in Turks and Caicos back in the early 70s. Uh, this is the founder. Mm -hmm. And started a little law firm, trust company, and, and bank. So my friend started working down there. And uh, about two years into it, uh, you know, we were sitting there having drinks in Toronto. And he you know, asked me, what was I doing? And I probably can't swear on this, but it was like all was what I was doing. Yeah. And um, he said, well, why don't you come down and see what we do? So I'm like, yeah. So next thing I know, I flew down through Miami, down to the islands, down to the Turks, and there was nothing there. Yeah. You know, dirt roads, people had broken down cars or little dirt bikes. and It's not the Tur Turks and Caicos that people think of now, all-inclusive, beautiful resort. It was just a no. shanty little island. It was a shanty little island, and great. The local people were amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the and there was a small group of professionals. So in order to go down there and work in finance, you had to be from the Commonwealth. So uh, they strategically legislated to keep Americans out. So you had to have either an accounting degree or a law degree from a Commonwealth country, which included Canada, obviously. Yeah. So you had some Canadian attorneys, you had old British lawyers, Australians, English, Kiwis, and uh, it was a really kind of neat spot, you know what I mean? And so it was a real adventure, but clearly it was a two-year assignment. Well, actually, I never moved down there to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of learned what they did. They had a sort of a skill set, and that's what I first be became accustomed to. Yes, I have all these degrees, but I am selling a product. Yes. Okay, so talk about that. You know, we've, we've talked about, like, sitting on your bed, acting like it's your office, making phone calls. Like, every, every, every person watching or listening to this right now can relate to stories like that. So kind of shed some light on that. Well, yeah, and I was really hopeful that they'd say, you know, I still wanted to have an office. Yeah. I wanted to put a jacket on. I still had that in me that I wanted that, and I yes. wanted to be in the office building. Yeah. So they said, well, you know... We don't want to give you a salary. Tell you what, here's what we do. Here are the products we do. Learn them. Uh, good luck. Yeah. So essentially, I flew back. Here, here's your, not even here's your desk. Just here's a bunch of people to call and go make some sales. Uh, I don't think I got any numbers to call either. Really? So I sort of, you know, what was good was that, because my mind isn't very big, It's a, there was a very limited scope of the tax act that they operated within. Yes. And so if you learn that, you sort of become the expert in that. And very few people knew that area. Got it. And the biggest thing was um, having the infrastructure on the island to be able to, be able to actually get the work done. Mm -hmm. So because a lot of people were leaving the country, uh, moving assets out, um, and you know, it was much different than the American situation where there was a clear, clear pathway out of Canada. Yeah. A lot of people took it at the time. Yeah. And this is going back to early 90s. Yep. So flew back to Toronto, um, didn't have money to open an office, got some business cards. They gave me business cards. And... Um, so, uh, you know, moved back in with my parents and uh, got an office line and started calling people I went to college with. You know, anyone knew I was working at a firm or dealt with CPAs, uh, I had a couple really good contacts out in British Columbia because I'd worked there for a year before I left the country. I actually went out to British Columbia to be practicing a law firm. So I went out to BC, got admitted to the bar. And I remember I was promised, I was given a job in a beautiful firm. I walked in the first day and I still remember 
the senior partner walking out and going, I don't know how to tell you this, but I made a mistake. And here I was, I borrowed money from my parents. My father and I drove across the country from Toronto to British Columbia. Wow. Amazing drive. Yeah. Rented an apartment for the year, walked in the first day of the job to be told, sorry, we made a mistake. We don't have a position for you. Okay, first of all, how do you deal with that? Well, there's shock, there's anger, there's, you know, I remember driving back to the condo where my father was proudly unpacking my stuff. And he, I walked in and he looked at me and goes, you know, he never swears. So he swore, he goes, what happened? I'm like, You're not going to believe this. And we both sat down I'm like, what, what are we going to do now? I signed this lease. I'd moved everything out there. Um, so I'm like, okay. Um, I called an old friend of mine who was in a CPA attorney and I was good friends with her and her husband. I go, Karen, what do I do? She goes, well, I go up to the University of British Columbia Law School. There's a job board. So literally, I went up there and I saw this little post-it. Yeah. Uh, sole practitioner looking for student. Hmm. So at that time in Canada, you had to get some uh, hours in before you could finish your bars. Already practiced and, and, and uh, cleared in Ontario. I wanted to go to British Columbia. So that was the only thing on the board. I went to see this guy and, you know, really eclectic guy. He loves to surf. So he went to undergrad in Hawaii and law school somewhere at UCSD. And uh, he primarily had a pro bono practice. He did legal aid and pro bono. Interesting. So I was his assistant for, I got paid $250 a week. So my, my pay barely covered my rent. And my I was choice. just going to say, like, what was the cost of the, the rental? Like that was, it, was, yeah. it was ugly. It was ugly. Yeah. So I started working for John. And uh, it was an incredible experience. You know, his office was in a really bad neighborhood of Vancouver. And uh, Vancouver had a real gang and drug problem. So our clients were drug addicts and gang members. So at what point did you say to yourself, like, how did it come to this? Because that's was, not the path. I mean, you know. No, there's many nights where I was like, are you kidding me? What's going on? But you just do it. Yeah. You just do it. And my parents were really upset. And, um, you know, they, you know, financially tried to do as much as they could for me. But, you know, I was very grateful. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, wow. Um, you know, again, so what happened was British Columbia changed the rules. They allowed me to write the bar immediately. I passed the bar by a couple percentage points. I think I needed a 70. I got a 72. Um, and then I'm like, okay, what do I do now? Now I'm officially a lawyer. I started applying for jobs in British Columbia. No jobs. And um, my money was running out. I had about 45 days of money left. I will, so I sublet my apartment. And I thought, do I fly home? And I remember my friend saying to me, go big or go home. Yeah. So for 30 days straight, my friend's husband and I, he was waiting for his green or his Canadian's papers. We had blocks in the back of his Nissan 240Z. And if anyone's been out west, they know what I'm talking about. We drove from Vancouver to Whistler and back every single day for 30 days. Because I said, well, if I'm out here, I'm going to learn how to ski well or better. Yeah. So we had, you know, we did, couldn't afford to stay over up there. Yeah. You know, we'd stop at McDonald's or the You Timor did the two hour hike up the hill. And that's when it was a one lane each yes. way, rock slides, way before all the Olympics. All my BC friends right now and all my skiers and snowboarders know this trip. Oh yeah. And you know what? I skied with these guys and I got murdered by them uh, before helmets, you know, anyway, it yeah. was, so basically I did that for 40 days or 30 days and I went home. So my friend would say, well, you went big and you went home. Yeah. I went home to Toronto and, um, you know, tried to figure things out. And that's when the opportunity in the islands came about. Got it. So before any of that happened, I went through that experience. So already out of school, all this education, student loans, no jobs out there. Hey, let's try it out there. Didn't work. We don't want you. Yeah. Went back. What do I do now? Yeah. No prospects once again. No prospects. Yeah. So, you know, just started trying and then, um, so the island thing started in, I started working out of my bedroom and, um, what I started telling you last night, which is honest truth. I remember, you know, I might go out with my buddies one night and my office phone would ring at eight in the morning. You know, I'd always have a glass of water by the phone so I could drink before I could speak because I couldn't speak sometimes. Uh, you know, good morning, this is Chris Rodomsky. And um, I sometimes I thought, God, they have no idea I'm in my parents' house. Yeah, sitting on my bed with a separate phone line. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took a long time for me to tell my mother, don't come bursting in my room in the morning going, good morning. Yeah. Because she did that a bunch of times. I'm sure. Like, you know, I'd say, oh, that's my assistant. Um, yeah. 
that was it. So just started cold calling people, making contacts. Uh, again, my dear friends in Vancouver introduced me to some very people that I didn't realize at the time were important to my future. Uh, that ended up being big referrers of clients. Yeah. So I started developing this client network in Toronto and Vancouver, sort of my niches, and uh, went on. So I generate clients, get deals done, fly down to the island, or they'd fly down with me. We'd get the deals completed. I'd get paid my commission, which was, I can't remember what it was, but it was a high percentage of my billings. Yeah. And it was great. You know, I was paying down my student loans. I was getting paid U.S. dollars. It was $1.40 Canadian. It, I was, this is awesome. So how did, I mean, okay, for my, the people that are listening, they're like, okay, like we all can relate to these kinds of stories. How did you pivot from all of that to what we know today? I mean, really, really it's, how did you first meet Jason? And then tell us about 100 Acre. Well, you know, I moved uh, to run a, a company in Bermuda from the, from Turks. Um, I was, got to the point, well, I ended up moving down to the Turks, loved it. But two, three years in, I'm like, oh, do I really want to be here? Just, you know, as you get older, start thinking, oh, I want, you know, I want to meet someone, I have a family, and it, mm-hmm. you know, it's great for business and work, and it was just a bunch of guys hanging out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a good group of Canadians, an American guy, or a couple Americans would come down. We had some retired NHL hockey players down there. So we had our ball hockey league. We had a blast. I learned yeah. how to windsurf, and that was my passion, so I windsurfed and played ball hockey. Yeah. Um, I ended up taking a job in Bermuda, and I thought, wow, okay, still my corporate back. I'm thinking, oh, I'm working for this old Bermudian company. Yeah. I'm working my way up the echelon of, you know, these jurisdictions. And um, I lived in a guest home on my boss's estate, which is brilliant. If anyone's ever been to Bermuda, they know I'm talking about. Yeah. Rode, rode around in a scooter, wore shorts, green socks, yeah. um, which was tough because my legs are really skinny. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so a year into that, my boss said, Chris, I'd really like you to go down to Grand Cayman and open an office for the company. And we have a sister company that so I was disappointed. I'm like, oh, do I want to go back to the Caribbean again? I thought it was sort of a demotion. Um, moved down there. Loved it. I loved the lifestyle. It was very sophisticated. A lot of expatriates. A lot of the, the local people are amazing. Uh, most likely my, most definitely my favorite island anywhere I lived. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up meeting my, my ex-wife there, Had a you know, which was brilliant at the time. Um, yeah. And... And in any event, through that, through my clients and through my work, I met a lot of great people. I met uh, good financial people. I met some financial visionaries, uh, institutional traders. And that's how I met uh, the gentleman, Jason, who I became dear friends with, who um, we loved wine. Um, His passion and ability to discern flavors, nuances of not only wine, but cooking or anything was incredible. So we became really close. And, um, you know, there was sort of a faithful day. We were golfing. Again, your BC people know this. We are in Furry Creek, Squamish, and drinking the king cans of beer. It's the two of us. And there was nobody out there. And I remember we chipped the balls up kind of near green. And we were coming up in our golf cart. And a giant black bear was on the green. And we stopped it. Yeah. And I'm like, holy mackerel. And um, we looked at each other and peeled around. And we said, we gave, gave each of ourselves par. Yeah. And on that round, I remember he said to me, you know, Chris, I, I would... My dream is to start a boutique, little wine, uh, exacting, relentless quality to the flavor profiles that are my favorite, da 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 And of course, you know, you're drinking, you're arm in arm laughing. That's great, that's great. He goes, do you want to do it with me? I'm like, okay. Really? That, that was essentially it. And um, we now, had- for the, for the record, for the people that are listening or watching this, you're talking about a, a, a wine brand that has the most perfect 100s well, in Napa it, Valley. I mean, know, it's some again, again, huge um, number. You know, it's it's, you know, Jason's ability, and it was incredible because without a formal background, mm-hmm. to be the highest scoring winemaker, in the world. In the world. Yeah. Um, and wasn't a master psalm. Didn't you know? Didn't go to France and you know all the sort of traditional routes. Oh, he to went become, everywhere. He went everywhere. Yeah, but not not. But he didn't come from there. There's no and degree from Cal, from exactly. UC Davis. There was no yeah. da da da. No, not at all. Not at yeah. all. And um, so, you know, I had great faith, trust, and friendship, and we essentially not essentially we had a handshake. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's take care of each other. And let's take care of our families. And that's a promise to this day that, you know, although we've you know we've we've evolved, devolved in our lives, yeah. um, we'll, we'll still keep with each other. So let's, let's talk about, let's kind of break down uh, building a luxury brand. Because that's really what 100 Acre, you know, obviously 
you know, what it is. It's a cult wine. And they, they had multiple different brands. But I want to talk just specifically for like, my luxury friends listening right now that are always trying to separate themselves from the competition, sure. right? They're like, like the wine business, real estate, mortgage, insurance. It's uber competitive. So just give us, like, what are your thoughts on storytelling, positioning? Like, how did you guys create this aura that everyone now knows as 100 Acre? Um, but again, you know, um, you know, tremendous credit to Jason because um, he, for the most part, if not all, created a lot of the background story. And um, I mean, he, you know, he's developing, taking the brand now on his own to great heights. You know, yeah. I mean, incredible. Um, the key is there was a story. You know what I mean? Um, you know, 100 Acre was a reference to Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. And Jason fancied himself as the El Mil. And I want to, don't make me, don't think I'm illiterary or anything, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I love Winnie the Pooh and I was Christopher Robin. And when we tell people that, there was a story, you know what I mean? And um, it, Blind and Boss and the Label uh, was the first passage of Homer's Odyssey. The Ulysses, the story mm-hmm. of a man, the struggles, representing your friends, families, and fighting strong. Yeah. And, you know, I think we both really um, could, you know, what's my word I'm looking for, um, relate to that. Because we looked at our relative backgrounds, yeah. the struggles, yeah. you know, where you, where you thought you'd go, you didn't. And even being in Northern California as two Canadian kids, um, you know, Napa didn't, it was difficult. Sure. Because at that time, Napa was very proper. Um, you know, there was a pecking order mm-hmm. and there was a hierarchy for sure. Yes. Okay. So every luxury, every startup, every agent on the planet, listen, this can, can relate to the pecking order and where they think yeah. they are. And how did you guys deal with that? Uh, well, we each dealt with it differently. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we're, we're a really good combination. Yeah. Um, you know, at times you get really angry, you get really pissed. Yeah. You know, you think, why are people doing this? Why are they being rude? Why, you know, and the way we always saw it was that, you know, that the boats all rise and fall with the tide. And we are a firm believer of Napa Valley Cabernet, mm-hmm. actually, as we were of Australian Shiraz, because uh, we made wine in Australia as well. But um, that's the way we felt. And, you know, to a certain extent, we kind of said, okay, you know what? Screw you guys. You know what? If that's the way you're going to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're not going to be disrespectful or anything to you, but we're not going to get any help from anybody. Um, and it's a very financially challenging business. Yes, it is. Um, we had no support from the banks, you know what I mean? Because everyone thought, oh. you know, cause when you think about it and I didn't really understand the, 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 the challenge before me, which was a business that essentially from the time you write the first check, you're looking at eight years before a dollar comes in. Think about that for all the people listening and watching right now. You've signed the first check and it's eight years later. Why? Like give them just a high level fast version of well, why that is, you know, it's, it's, you know, Using the analogy in the spirits industry, um, you know, if you could find a distillery where you could make gin or vodka mm-hmm. today. Yep. So you create a name. What takes you the longest is really developing your label design and getting all the legal approvals. Yeah. So you're talking three, four months. Three to four months, you could have your own gin and vodka. Yep. Be in business. Yep. Um, if you want to make bourbon, which has more specific rules in the bourbon. Creating bourbon is much more like a wine in the sense that, you know, you've got to grow the grains. You've got to do this. You've got to age in oak. Mm -hmm. So you're talking anywhere from one to seven, 10, there's 25 year old bourbons out there. Yeah. So this isn't something you go boom and start it. Yeah. So it requires infrastructure, requires time and it requires a lot of capital because, you know, think about it. If you're developing a wine at the higher end, meaning if your vintage is 2019, you're not going to sell it for three years from the time you make it. Yeah. So you're talking 2022. Yep. And the storage time, the time of the barrels, you need a facility, uh, you need the vines. So there's a lot of different ways to get into the wine business. And, uh, but if you want to operate at that end, you really have to have the quality and have the authenticity. Yes. And the way everything's evolved, people are so discerning, no different than the bourbon business, tequila business, you know, people ask, well, where do you make it? Where does it come from? How do you make it? Do you own the facility? How many other brands are made at the facility? Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to figure out, okay, if you want How to be- How authentic is this? Well, especially yeah. if you're operating at that level. Yeah. It's yeah, incredible yeah. out there. At first, you get asked all those questions. But as things have evolved, there are so many wine brands out there now that are beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not saying you need all that to have a great wine. Yep. You don't. You need. You certain. can source the great well, juice need, from somebody yeah, else. You need, and, you need, you yeah. need talent. You need to have yeah. the uh, ability to discern the flavors and to create what's in the bottle. Yeah. That's the real. But if you find the elements, if, assuming you can find that, um, you know, it's not impossible. So you don't need to be the billionaire mm -hmm. to, well, you almost need to be now in Napa, but to go in there to buy the land, to plant, to hire. Yeah. You know, most guys come up to hire the best of everybody yeah. and just write all the checks and they expect to get a hundred point wine and, or, uh, you know, top scoring bourbon. And they don't understand if they don't get that, what happened? So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how long does it take to become successful in any business endeavor? Well, I think it depends what you're doing. If you're taking a marijuana company public on the bulletin board, probably pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's that. But I think any business where you're creating a product that's luxury, you know, I just look at the ones that are out there. You know, uh, and people ask me, well, look at this bourbon brand. They're, they're doing great. I go, well, they've been at it for 15 years. You know, um, I hope it's not that long. Um, but learning what I've done over my past, seeing how our old, the brands I worked on developed, mm -hmm and majority of them were sold. Um, you get a good idea of, you know, when the inflection point is, when is a good time to sell, how to do it, and um, I guess it just depends on what you're doing. Yeah. You know, if you're developing a luxury automobile or a great watch, how competitive is the industry, but I think if you're making something, or I guess if you're in real estate, developing a client base, mm -hmm. then years. Yeah. You know, you don't just put an ad in the paper or put a sticker on your car and or one one Facebook post and say, "Here I am." Oh yeah, put yeah. some print ads in the back of whatever magazine. Yeah. that's great. Yeah, you know what I mean. You need to get your listings. And what, yeah, I guess what gets your listings? What gets you these people to depending on to list their homes with you? Well, they think you can do it. Well, how can you do it? You've got deals. So it's kind of one of those things: is you're almost as good as your last deal, only as good as your last deal, but you need deals. Yeah, I think it's you know um, once you get a deal done, people get to know you. And then there's referrals and it's, it's, you know, we're all selling stuff. Yeah. That's the, I mean, so you, you, I want to just unpack a little bit uh, there. You know, I think we both agree it takes time and that's always a message that I'm sharing with people. Like it takes time, right? Everything worthwhile takes time. Um, what advice do you have though for young entrepreneurs, for the person that may be listening right now, that's just getting their career started, right? Just kind of, what are your thoughts there? What do they need to know? Um, well, aside from the fact that, you know, you need a certain level of capitalization, mm -hmm. like you need to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking for myself, I think never be too big to think you can't learn something. Never be afraid of a field you don't know that much about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you never know. Well, number one, you should be very respectful to who you're dealing with. Always. Even if it's someone that's the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. Be respectful. Yeah. And you know, you can make a decision after the fact whether or not you're going to hang around with them or do business with them. But I've learned the hard way being around some people that um, were really so egotistical that it prevented them from having a partnership or, or taking anything from anyone. Uh, but as I get older and go on, uh, I think it's even more important to work with people, you know, I know technically it may work for you, but have people you work with. Mm -hmm. And one of my big goals now is to try to really create a work environment where if it works, it's good for everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. not, Hey, the company sells, see you later. Yeah. And you know, some people look at it that way, but a lot of people don't, yeah. you know, you'll talk to a good salesperson you want to hire and like, well, you know, I want equity and I want this, I want this. So, well, okay, that's great. But I tell you what, instead of paying you base salary of $100,000, how about you take 75 and we'll give you a bigger talent? A lot of people say no. You Which is I mean? interesting. It's a, yeah. yeah. They, like they don't get it. There's a bigger play here. Yeah. But I know looking back, I had an amazing mentor, teacher with Jason and amazing partner. Yeah. And uh, I think he's a, tr he's a true visionary in the industry. And you know, obviously we move on in our lives and, but since then, you know, you really can be very careful. You know, I think, you know, yeah, people want to invest, people want to do this, but I think you could find the right people that are a good collaborative partner. Mm -hmm. You know, some people may not be creative. Some people may have contacts. Some people may have this. Everyone has a little piece of the puzzle. Never think that, you know, you're smarter than everybody else. And, and I still learning on how to not micromanage and push things away. Yeah. And every once in a while you go, Oh my God, what just happened? Yeah. You know what I mean? But, um, 
I think bringing the right to find the right crew people to be your partners and or people you work with, not for or yep. it's that's incredible. But for a young entrepreneur, you know, study what's happening, be respectful for people, and you never know where your first good lead is going to come from. That's right. Or the next meeting that you have, how that can impact your career yep. 10, 15, 20, 30 years later if you're playing the long game. Hey, it's Tom. If you've been listening to me for a while, you've heard me say repeatedly over and over again, we are living in the review economy. That's right. Consumers are making decisions based upon reviews. With that said, I'm looking to get this podcast into the minds of more amazing people just like you. You can help. Would you go to Apple Podcasts and write a review? Tell them what you think. Hey, one star, five stars, make up your own number of stars. Totally fine by me, but please go to Apple Podcast and write a review. It means the world to me. Thanks in advance. Now, let's get back to the show. So let, let's pivot. Let's talk about the new thing you've created, right? So, you know, you've, you've moved away from the wine business, kind of, though there's a new wine project here, but un, unnamed, right? But talk to us about the Duke, right? What's the, what's the backstory? How did this happen? And, and where's it going? And kind of what, you know, we'll just talk about sort of the lessons sure. you've learned in this new venture, because this is technically a startup. Um, yeah, I guess in a certain sense, um, you know, it started way before my time in the late fifties. Yeah. Um, it was a passion and creation of, you know, the infamous legend, John Wayne. Mm -hmm. And, um, obviously I knew John Wayne was growing up. Um, but about 10, 12 years ago, I was living in Southern California and a good friend of mine introduced me to Ethan Wayne, John Wayne's youngest son. Mm -hmm. And um, Ethan had come in to sort of control and take, take control of the estate. They, you know, John Wayne Cancer Foundation is one of the leading cancer research facilities in the country, if not the world. And also, you know, the things they did, you know, the products and, and the very, very limited licenses they had for, you know, stuff that embodied John Wayne. And he had discovered basically lost vaults. And it's almost like an Indiana Jones kind of thing. Yeah. And they pulled them all the out. And, and yeah. so I met him. He said, listen, I, we've got all these letters, textual evidence, banker's boxes full of everything mm -hmm. and costumes, Academy Awards. It's treasure trove. Yeah. And we have my father's liquor collection. So here is, a, here is Ethan when he was, he was a child. He was basically traveled with his father all the time. Yeah. Lived with his father. Was his son, best friend personal assistant yep. on the set exactly. on the set yeah so if anyone knew the man it was Ethan um, well so we went down he opened up the vault and you know I exaggerated on this one it's almost like you know the mummy came out the, yeah you know the, the, the dust and sure enough it was like going back in time yeah we had bottles dating back to the late early early 60s and Ethan said listen my dad was working on I think making some bourbons and whiskeys and he loved tequila so we started looking at the bottles, digging through the evidence. And at first I was like, ah, oh, celebrity brand. Yeah. I don't know. Because, you know, we'd been approached by a lot of wealthy guys, sports sure. celebrities coming up to nap and saying, hey, we'll, we'll pay for everything. Make me a wine. But we always thought, where's the authenticity? I'm not saying a mm -hmm. celebrity can't be really into it. And there are sure. a few out there that are really are. And, and they're, they're doing great. God bless them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for them, to a great degree, and it's gone even way out of control, you know, people feel they have to have a celebrity name on a brand to make it good. Yeah. But if someone's really into the true authentic nature of a product, especially if you're paying a lot of money for it, you want to make sure you, have, you check all the other boxes. But anyway, so anyway, a, a lot of investigation, um, reading, tastings, and we put together, you know, evidence to what we call today's 1962 recipe. So even from that time, it took about seven years to get the product to market. Again, you don't just make bourbon overnight. No. So we had to find the right collection of older barrels that matched the flavor profiles. We reverse engineered the recipe. We started making new bourbons. So what we see today is really an involvement of all that. Um, you know, we have the various stuff we've made over the years, but uh, the brand has evolved into something that I think is really reflective of the man and the character of what's behind the authenticity, an approachable, affordable, amazing product. Yeah. And that's, you know, and, you know, we've, I've taken, I think the skill set and nuances from the wine industry, which I think operates at a very high level of taste and flavor, and blend that into our hiring expressions, and uh, to have a really nice lineup of products. So there's so much in this conversation that, that I really hope people are getting. Good things take time. Authenticity, right? Quality over just throwing stuff out into the marketplace. Um, 
how do you survive the early days? Like whether it was the wine business or you're, you're creating a product that you can't even sell for seven years. Like I have people watching this right now, they get frustrated by the fact that maybe they acquire a lead or they meet a potential prospect and the person doesn't do something instantaneously and they're frustrated. Sure. You with me versus, hey, I'm gonna build something that I can't sell for seven or eight years and it's just gotta sit, but I gotta pay for it. I gotta create it and then just, let it, just watch it do nothing. You know what? It's 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 challenging because uh, you know there was always major capital constraints. Yeah, and um, I think fortunately, um, being able to pull through that, and um, the right people that did come through. You know, I have to give another tremendous, tremendous uh, shout out to Southern Wine Spirits. Yeah, um, all the way from the salespeople on the street to the ownership in Miami. Yeah, um, without them and their generosity um, from supporting the products, finding physicians for my son, you name it. Yeah. You know, there's a family there that, you know, it's integral. It's almost like the real estate brokerage, you know, compared to the, the top producing salesperson, the top producing agent, kind of a similar connection. They've got the distribution, the family, the resources to support, but do you really connect with them, right? Do you, do you love on them sort of mutually or in many cases in the real estate world, oftentimes agents find themselves, you know, almost like the angry bird, like angry at their broker. Give me more, give me more. And forget sometimes that you get, it's a two-way street, right? You got to give to get. Thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, see, I, I, you know, you're, you're, you're asking me how difficult my business is and when, you know, yeah. holy mackerel, I can't believe that. But I look at the real estate business yeah. or being a stockbroker. Yeah. Which, guys I'm really familiar with. Yeah. I look at that and going, I would even, it's almost like trying to be an actor. Yeah. I'm moving to Hollywood. I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> exactly. Right. And what I really look at that. I'm going to go be a waiter. <laughs> and again, yeah. it's, it's an industry that I think that everyone says, well, you know, the 5% of the agents do 95% of the business. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I know I've had my own opinions on how realtors work. And I was telling that earlier. Yeah. You know, I haven't had many homes, uh, but interesting early on, I remember I had a transaction I wanted to sell and I brought in a really top agent, wonderful man. Mm -hmm. And um, also someone else who was a friend who didn't have the experience, didn't have the big flashy ads and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they both, I said, listen, just tell me what you think the property's worth, how you'd market it. And I, I didn't know anything. But someone said, well, you need to ask this, 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 this. Okay. What do you think it should be listed for? Yeah. What do you think the sales price is? The well, sellers have scripts. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, the really well-to-do gentleman came in, beautiful Great conversation. I'm like, okay. Said to my wife at the time, we're, we're for sure dealing with him. I said, we'll get back to you. Let me know what you He goes, no, no problem. The other woman came in, um, and I remember, and I hope she's watching this because she knows who exactly she is. And, you know. We won't, we won't drop names. You know, you know, very sweet, but we knew she didn't quite have the experience level of the other guy or the mm -hmm. marketing might or a group. Yeah. That was before there were yeah, yeah. real estate before groups. Before mega teams, yes. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, anyway. She came back the next day or two with a proposal, and we had an idea what we thought the house was worth, but it was completely aligned with what we thought. You kind of waited for the other one, waited, waited, and you know, sort of like I was in the wine industry when people wouldn't want to help us, I'd say, over you. Yeah. So we went with her and sold the house. I remember many months later, the gentleman that introduced me to the other agent, the really well-to-do agent, said, how come you never... He always asks you, how come Radomsky never did give him the listing? I'm like, he never called me back. Think about how simple that is. He never called me back. And, and everybody, myself included, we've all been guilty of, we meet somebody, yeah, I got to follow up on that. And then you get busy or something happens and we forget. And, and this guy's still a friend of mine when I yeah. run into him. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Da, 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 good to see you. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, and we're going back 15 years. Yeah. Um, and I remember running into him one time and he asked me, I said, well, you never called me back. Yeah. He kind of looked at me like, huh? I'm like, well, you know, my, I guess my ego yeah. said, I am giving you something so you could make money. Yes, I need to sell the house. Yes. It's a service to me, but you're making money. Right? So you won't even call me back. You won't even tell me what you think my house is worth. Was I supposed to fill out the listing agreement myself? Yeah. Like, well, I, I, so we just... And that was it. Yeah. And we're talking about a legendary real estate professional. We will not name names, but yes, I mean, it's, look, we've all been guilty of it. So, so let me ask you this, just kind of, you know, 
think, I mean, you know, I say this is a startup because you've really only been selling the product now for a couple of years. Well, the new, yeah, the new, the new evolution, correct? Yes. So, so if you think about that, like you come from, you know, the most perfect 100s, you know, in the world, like you, this, like the sort of pinnacle of success, and then you're technically starting over. So kind of give us some insight on like kind of knowing what you know now kind of about starting over. What have you done differently this time versus in the past? Well, like to build this brand, to get the word yeah. out, to, to hustle, to, you know, to, to make it happen. Oops. You that know, <laughs> again, you know, I was very fortunate to be around and learn from some amazing people. Mm-hmm. Not only in, uh, and I would never pass myself off as a master distiller or yeah. a winemaker. Yeah. I have a good palate, but you know, I work with great people in that regard and I have an idea of what I want it to taste like. Uh, but again, it's, and it's acquired, but in terms of presentation, packaging, storytelling, mm-hmm. there's 15 years of sitting and listening and the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me now, um, you know, people want to start a wine brand or they've never done their, oh my God, how do I do this? There's legal, there's this, there's that. Honestly, since I've seen it all and, you know, a lot of what we did was almost like a MacGyver operation. Yeah. You know, and it was MacGyver. You know, I got stories. Some people might have to going, Google what that means, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, yes. MacGyver was the guy that basically was always, he was like a spy yeah. secret agent and he was always in a situation where he just had like, like a, a toothpick. A piece of scotch tape Correct. and a piece of paper. And right? you had to build a helicopter yes. of a toothpick yes. and get out of there. Yeah. You know, it's like Rambo being shot by 5,000 guys at the same time, but not being hit. Yeah. We, but see, we would call that being uber resourceful, right? And not blaming resources. Right? Like, that's really what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're just having the relationships, you know, yeah. uh, 1 million percent relationship with Southern Wine Spirits. Yeah. Because to have the right relationship, but still, you've got to go in with the reputation. Yeah. Not only in you've done something, but you've been honorable in what you've done. Yes. Um, because they deal with a lot of people, they get hundreds of new product submissions a day. Yep. From everybody. That's a little, that's called competition, my friends that are listening to watching. Including wealthy people, celebrities. Hey, so-and-so's got a new tequila and there's millions of them now. Yeah. So to have that built up network, Rolodex, where you have that friend relationship, you say, hey, can we have a meeting? I want to, so when I, when this was re-evolved, it was sort of sitting down with them saying, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? The goal was to produce something that used all the skill sets from when it was been acquired. So in terms of getting it to market, way easier because you've got 20 years of body blows yeah. and mistakes. Yeah. Finding the right label producer, finding the right collaborative designer. But also what came from that was we had to do everything ourselves because no one would help us. And then once you become successful, guess what? Banks want to finance you and everyone wants to be your buddy. Yeah. So, but you have to pull back from that and not be arrogant about it. And just say that's fantastic, but you know you know that's where it was. Mm-hmm. So I know that it could easily go back to that. But again, um, there's a database, a skill set. It's like having 20 cars in your garage. It's not a value thing, but hey, I got a car because I built 20 cars over the last 15 years, and yeah. they're sitting there. So I, can I go somewhere? Absolutely. As opposed to saying, oh God, I need to build my first car. Yeah. So you're not reinventing the wheel. But what also has happened is the market has evolved so much in terms of competition, creativity, authenticity, that you really have to, I think, continue to up your game. And my real hope is that the consumer is, and I believe this to be true, is so advancing. You know, and I'm old now. So now we're talking millennials, Generation Z. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter's 18. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, I'm trying to understand areas that you have no clue. That's such an insightful thing that I hope a lot of people picked up on. I constantly do the same thing. I'm constantly asking my boys what's hot, what's not. What do you think about this color scheme? What do you think about this story? Sure. How am I positioning this? And to hear it from a 16-year-old at the time, well, Dad, I think it's kind of stupid. Or, you know, have you thought about it this way? Right? Like, that gives you tremendous insight. Did you always do that? Um, you know, um, yes, but... You know, my uh, my ex-wife was 10 years younger than me, so she was a great source of insight. Yeah. Um, although a lot of stuff she said to me, I, did, I took offense to. <laughs> but um, no, That's but, a whole separate podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, when my daughter got a little bit older, and especially being in, in where, we, where I live right now, yeah. um, 
you know, it's a tremendously advanced society down here. Yes. You know, Miami Beach is a different world. There's people from all over the world. You get all sorts of different aspects of culture, of viewpoints, mm-hmm. personalities. Um, I see that as an advantage. Body types. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, no, but, she, you know, my daughter evolved so quickly. Yes. And to this international educated, and of course she's all over social media. Yeah. So, although she hasn't studied it, so it's very easy to say, what do you think about this? What yeah. do you think about this? Yeah. What do you think about this? You know, have you heard of so-and-so? Yeah. Look at this influencer. Would you? No. Yeah. So again, it's not a definitive thing, but I think. You but know, it's another point of contact. A lot of people don't ask the question. You know, they, and, they just, they go blindly into things yeah. versus getting some, some input. Now you got to be mindful. You can't get so much input that you don't do anything. Right. And that's certainly not your, your, your input. And then you move. Well, yeah, I think especially in this whole digital age and we talk about it all the time mm-hmm. like where do you spend your marketing dollars yeah print ads forget it you know maybe yeah. in real estate people need to see things yeah and I think there's very few magazines out there that people actually pick up you know usually it's only to see your own picture yeah I don't know but that's um, no that's the truth I mean you know, there's financial magazines yeah. there's things like that but it's all right here yeah um, so I don't really know for what I do I think there's a certain box you have to check in certain publications you probably still need to be into mm-hmm. Because in my business, they're sort of gatekeepers. Yeah. And you need to be in those gatekeeper publications. And they're expensive. Yep. And you need to get relationships. And then you sort of take, but I'm really intrigued by the whole digital cyber marketing, uh, getting to the right consumer, um, making it easy for them to buy. At the same time, knowing that you checked all the authenticity boxes. And my real goal is to try to make my portfolio, because... You know, there's, there's a Kiela project we've been working on, the new wine project, is to have really relevant, be in relevant areas mm-hmm. that are growing. Yeah. But the consumers are almost all the same. Yeah. They're 25 to 50 year old, super intelligent men, women, people from everywhere. Um, you know, they're buying more expensive products, but they want to know. Is this real? Is this real? Is there a good backstory? Is, well, can, can I you, tell my friends about this? Correct. And what about this? What about this? You know, yeah. we're announcing opening our tasting center next week in, in um, Owensboro, Kentucky, which is a huge deal for us with the distillery we have a partnership with. And that's mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. Can you go and taste it? Yes, you can. Yeah. We make it there. Yep. It's on the bourbon trail. Yeah. But what's interesting, too, in the bourbon industry, I don't know what percentage, but a very high percentage of the bourbons, like tequilas, are made in factories. Most people don't know that. Yeah, I'm not saying they're not good. Yeah. And when I first got into this, I was drilled. Where you make it? Where you make it? Where you make it? Kentucky, Kentucky, Kentucky. But most big, there are a number of big brands out there that were made in factories in Indiana. The bourbon was great. Don't get me wrong. But somehow they managed to skillfully market around that. And I, yeah. I'm like, how do you do that? That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, now people don't really care as long as it's good. And so much goes into the marketing. But again, I think if you have that behind you and the good marketing, then you sort of check all the boxes. And then it's just about getting in front of people and having a good distribution network and having, you know, getting the product out there. Good partners. Good to everyone in real estate understands distribution. It's Zillow, Realtor, Trulia. It's your MLS. It's, you know, it's all yep. the portals. It's all that stuff. So, Chris, as we, as we wrap up, um, you know, being mindful of, of your time and, and what we got to do next, um, just kind of like lessons just or last sort of insight like if you could if you could talk to every sales professional on the planet what would be the one thing you'd want to say from your experience to build their business it's a big question i know yeah i think it depends on what level they're selling at if you're selling a 10 million dollar house versus but i think there's common factors which are be respectful to who you're dealing with yeah i think even if you're the biggest fish in the pond you could have a how do I put it? Um, a very um, admirable arrogance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always good to, if you don't know what you're talking about, to look what you t- know what you, you know to pretend you do or to come across as you do. Don't be over overly arrogant, uh, and be, be very warm to people. I'm a firm believer that if you have a friendship connection or a warmth, it's not that you're going to go out and have dinner with them every night. Yeah. But if they feel, hey, you know, sometimes that's backfired on me because people mm-hmm. have said to me if they know about if they learn about my family and my issues in my life, they're like. Oh, Jesus, I don't think he can do this because look at all the crap going on in his life. Yeah. Sometimes that backfires, but if people really, you know, I think the really solid people say, God, you're pulling off, you're doing that. I think if you develop that connection with somebody, if possible, then I think that's really important. But it's all about your personality, how you're, you know, how you come across when they first see you and people prejudge. Yes, they do. It's just the bottom line. 
if you come up in a Rolls Royce, depending on your client is, if it's a $25, $80 million house, you know, but just you have to be very careful about how you present yourself. And your goal is to do a good job and get the sale. Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. Very insightful. And congratulations. I mean, obviously, I'm super proud to be a part of all of this and, you know, to be your pal and be able to, you know, collaborate in the ways that I can help. So for my friends that are watching, listen, share this with people that you know, especially people that are entrepreneurs that are wanting to get started. Maybe people that went to school, got a bunch of degrees and are now are finding themselves like... I have the degrees in my cupboard up yeah, here, like, by the way. What am I going to do now, right? Because Chris's story is sort of that typical entrepreneurial, not typical, but that like extraordinary entrepreneurial story that we all get inspired by, right? Like my whole life's going left, left ain't working out, I pivot and go right. You're going to have, and I still do, big downs. Yeah. You know, just every once in a while, you start crying. Yeah. Going, what the, how am I going to get this done? Or the, yeah. everyone has the three o'clock wake up. Oh yes. You wake up at dead time and you go, what the heck? How am I going to solve don't this? Don't look at your yeah. phone. Don't look yeah. at your texts. Don't look at your emails yeah. because you know, and I really, really hate Friday afternoon, bad emails. <laughs> hate it. <laughs> hate it. Some of my dearest people I work with do it. And I call them and say, please, I love you. It's just, don't do that again. Yeah, Cause yeah, I've had yeah. a long week. Yeah, yeah, I don't need to see that on Saturday Punch morning. Punch me in the face Monday morning. I can handle yeah. it easier. Yeah, I'll get good sleep and yeah. just don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. I... Maybe that's a good little lesson there too as we close this out. Like, don't send bad emails. <clears throat> Dear Mr. Seller, your property is grossly overpriced Friday at five, right? Probably not a good idea. And don't break up with me before my birthday or Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, I, it's pretty amazing that we survived this entire podcast without breaking open the bottle of, uh, of juice here, but it is 10 a.m. So, Chris, thank you uh, so much for your time. And for all my friends out there, uh, listen, keep listening, keep learning, keep growing, keep executing, because that's the game. If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again, and talk to you soon.